Welcome everyone to episode 25 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I'm your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. Skeletal remains found in 1964 belong to a previously unrecognized type of plesiosaur that somewhat resembles the Loch Ness Monster, the fabled creature said to reside in its namesake lake in the Scottish Highlands. Obtained by private collectors in 1964, scientists said the remains were part of an 8-meter-long skeleton. Only recently were experts asked to identify the ancient creature by the Lower Saxony State Museum in Hanover, Germany. From allthatsinteresting.com, a story entitled, A 132-million-year-old Loch Ness Monster Skeleton Found. Plesiosaurs were an especially formidable type of dinosaur which roamed the seas between 65 and 203 million years ago. They were ferocious predators that went extinct with the last of the remaining dinosaurs after the Cretaceous-Paleogene extinction event some 65 million years ago. The newly identified plesiosaur has been named Lagenonectis ricteri, Latin for Lagina swimmer, so-called for the German name for the Lane River during medieval times. It was also named after Dr. Annette Richter, who prompted the fossil's identification, and who is also the chief curator of natural sciences at the Lower Saxony State Museum. Plesiosaurs were known for their long necks and could reach a size of up to 56 feet in length. The remains in Saxony include a majority of the skull, vertebrae, ribs, and bones that once moved its flippers to propel it through the sea. The jaws had some especially unusual features, said Dr. Jan Hornung, a paleontologist and co-author of a new paper detailing the findings. Its broad chin was expanded into a massive, jutting chest, and its lower teeth stuck out sideways. These probably served to trap small fish and squid that were then swallowed whole. Scientists theorized that the dinosaur's jaws may have contained nerves linked to pressure receptors or electroreceptors on the outside of the snout that would have helped it locate its prey. The bones of this particular animal displayed signs of a chronic infection that may have ultimately killed it. The most important aspect of this new plesiosaur is that it is amongst the oldest of its kind, noted Dr. Benjamin Keir of the Museum of Evolution at Uppsala University in Sweden and the senior author of the paper. It is one of the earliest elasmosaurs, an extremely successful group of globally distributed plesiosaurs that seem to have had their evolutionary origins in the seas that once inundated Western Europe. On an early spring day in 2018, the faint smell of formaldehyde floating in the air, 26-year-old medical student Warren Nielsen and four of his classmates prepared a cadaver in the Chile Dissection Lab at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. Similar groups of five gathered around bodies on the other 15 tables in the anatomy class, 
all eager to explore the mysteries of the human body they had seen only in textbooks. The cadaver assigned to Nielsen's team was a 99-year-old woman who had died of natural causes. Her name was Rose Marie Bentley, but the students didn't know that then. To honor and respect the privacy of those who offer their bodies to science, no further details are given medical students about the person who had once inhabited the body lying on the silvery slab before them. From CNN.com, a story by Sandy Lamott. She lived for 99 years with organs in all the wrong places and never knew it. But as the students and their professors were soon to find out, Bentley was special. So special, she deserved her own unique spot in medical literature and history books. The reason? A condition called situs inversus with levocardia, in which the most vital organs are reversed, almost like a mirror inside the body. That, along with a host of other weird but wonderful abnormalities, made Bentley a sort of medical unicorn. I think the odds of finding another person like her may be as remote as one in 50 million, said assistant professor Cameron Walker, who teaches the Foundations of Clinical Anatomy class at Oregon Health and State University. I don't think any of us will ever forget it, honestly. On this March day, the assignment was to open the body's chest cavity to examine the heart. It wasn't long before Nielsen's group began to question their fledgling medical knowledge. Her heart was missing a large vein that's normally on the right side, Nielsen said. Bewildered, he and his team called the professors over and asked, Where's the inferior vena cava? Are we missing it? Are we crazy? And they kind of rolled their eyes, Nielsen said, like, How can these students miss this big vessel? And they come over and that's when the hubbub starts. They're like, Oh my God, this is totally backwards. A typical body has a large vein called the vena cava that follows the right side of the vertebral column, curving under the liver and emptying deoxygenated blood into the heart. Bentley's vein was on the left, and instead of terminating directly into the heart, which is typical, her vein continued through her diaphragm along the thoracic vertebrae, up and around and over the aortic arch, and then emptied into the right side of the heart, Walker said. Normally speaking, none of us have a vessel that does that directly, he added. That wasn't the only irregularity Walker and his students found in Bentley's body. Numerous veins that typically drain the liver and other parts of the chest cavity were either missing or sprouting from an unusual spot. Her right lung only had two lobes instead of the standard three, while the right atrium of her heart was twice the normal size. And instead of having a stomach on the left, which is normal, her stomach was on the right, Walker said. Her liver, which normally occurs predominantly on the right, was predominantly on the left. Her spleen was on the right side instead of its normal occurrence on the left. And then the rest of her digestive tract, the ascending colon, was inverted as well. The mutations in situs inversus with levocardia occur early, Walker explained possibly between 30 and 45 days into the pregnancy. No one knows why. The condition occurs in only one out of 22,000 babies and is invariably associated with severe congenital heart disease. Because of the heart defects, only 5% to 13% live past the age of 5. Case reports mention one 13-year-old boy and a 73-year-old who at the time was the second longest survivor but Bentley was an anomaly. 
one of the few born with the condition that didn't have heart defects, Walker said. That is almost certainly the factor that contributed most to her long life, he said. And that, along with all her other exceedingly rare anatomical abnormalities, is what makes Bentley one in 50 million, Walker estimated. Rose Marie Phelps was born in 1918 in Waldport, a small town on the Oregon coast. The youngest child of four, she was babied, said daughter Patty Helmig, who at 78 is the oldest of her five children. She would admit she was spoiled. A hairdresser by trade, Bentley was always fascinated by science, Helmig remembered, and she believes her mother would have made a fine nurse if she'd been given the opportunity to train. She volunteered during World War II for one of the nurses' aid corps, Helmig said, and she was thrilled when someone reached out to her about doing a study on smallpox survivors, which she had as a child. Despite chronic heartburn, which would have been explained by her unusual gastric anatomy, Bentley never showed any negative effects from her flip-flopped innards, said 76-year-old Ginger Robbins, the third of Bentley's children. We had no reason to believe there was anything like that wrong, Robbins said. She was always very healthy. She was always doing something, taking us to campfire girls, fishing, swimming. She was an excellent swimmer. The only clue anything might be unusual came when Bentley's appendix was removed, said 66-year-old Louis Ali, the fourth-born child and youngest of the daughters. The surgeon made a note that her appendix wasn't in the right spot when they took it out, Ali said, but never said anything to us. Nobody said a thing when they took her gallbladder out and did a hysterectomy either. The decision to become a body donor began with Jim Bentley, Rosemary's husband, but she too thought it was the greatest thing, Allie remembers. There was a poem that my dad had found and it was all about donating your parts, she said. You know, give my eyes to a man who has never seen the sunrise and the like. He kept showing us the poem. It was really important to them. The poem, written by Robert Tess, opens with the line, Give my sight to the man who has never seen a sunrise, a baby's face, or love in the eyes of a woman, and ends with, If by chance you wish to remember me, do it with a kind deed or word, or someone who needs you. If you do all I've asked, I will live forever. The couple's beliefs about donation made an impact. All three daughters planned to donate their bodies for research. Jim Bentley kept his promise and donated his body when he died of pneumonia more than a dozen years before his wife's death. His daughters know that he would have loved to have known about his wife's peculiar insides so he could have teased her about it. He also would have been tickled they could teach medical students something so different and really make some great use of her body, Allie said. And what would Bentley have said about being one in a 50 million kind of gal? She would have just thought it was funny, Robbins said. Allie agreed. She would have had a big smile on her face. Here's another plesiosaur story for us. This time from Georgia. This is entitled Altamaha Ha, Serpent of the Altamaha River in Georgia. And this is from legendsofamerica.com. Near the mouth of the Altamaha River in southeastern Georgia is said to reside a hissing sea monster. Called Altamaha Ha for the river, or Alti for short, 
The legend predates British English colonization and is said to have originated with the Lower Muscogee Creek tribe. One of the largest rivers in the state of Georgia, it empties into the Atlantic Ocean and has one of the largest river basins in the country, second only to the Mississippi River. Extending about 137 miles, it joins up with three major tributaries, that of Ogmulgee and Oconee Rivers near Lumberton City, and joined further downriver by the Ahupi River. It empties out into Altamaha Sound above Brunswick, where it's joined by the Darien, Butler, and Champney Rivers before making its way to the ocean. The river area, located primarily in McIntosh and Glen counties along the Atlantic coast, is not compromised of beaches, but rather is made up of many islands, acres of marshes, dikes, canals, ponds, and old rice fields. The Altamaha is said to inhabit the myriad of small streams and twisting channels of the river and adjacent marshes, particularly around Darien, Butler Island, and elsewhere in McIntosh County. This strange cryptid is described as having a sturgeon-like body including a bony ridge on its top. With front flippers and no back limbs, it swims like a dolphin and has the snout of a crocodile with large protruding eyes and sharp teeth. Its coloring is said to be gray or green with a whitish-yellow underbelly. Reports indicate that it's 20 to 30 feet long, though some have stated seeing smaller or larger creatures suggesting that the Altamaha is not alone. It has reportedly been seen basking itself on the shore, trolling casually along the river, and has even reacted defensively while in the presence of boaters. Though no physical evidence of the Altamaha has been found, the tales date back for centuries with the Indians describing a giant snake-like creature that hissed and bellowed. One of the first non-native reports of the creature was on April 18, 1830, when a correspondent of the Savannah Georgian newspaper reported multiple sightings of a sea monster on the Georgia coast. The primary eyewitness was a Captain Delano of the schooner Eagle, who reported seeing a large creature off of St. Simon's Island below the mouth of the Altamaha River. His description stated that it was about 70 feet long, its circumference about the size of a barrel, and its head resembled that of an alligator. Five other men on the schooner also reported having seen the monster, as well as several planters on St. Simon's Island. In the 1920s, timbermen riding the river reported sighting a large, snake-like water monster, and in 1935, a group of hunters spotted what they called a giant snake swim through the river. In the 1940s, Boy Scouts reported seeing the creature, as well as two officials from the Reedsville State Prison from the 1950s. In 1969, when two brothers were fishing on the Altamaha River at Clark's Bluff, they reported seeing an animal that they first thought was a sturgeon, but quickly changed their mind when they got a better look. Stating that it measured about 10 to 12 feet long, with a snout like an alligator and a horizontal tail, they also described the creature as having a triangular ridge along the top of its body sharp pointed teeth, and being gunmetal gray in color. In the summer of 1980, two men reportedly saw Altamaha Ha stranded on a mud bank near Cathead Creek. They reported that the animal was lying halfway in the water, thrashing and trying to free itself from the bank. They described it as being dark colored with rough skin and about 20 feet long. While watching, the creature freed itself, submerged, and disappeared. 
Later that year, in December 1980, another man reported having seen what he thought was Altamaha in Smith Lake. His description said the animal was 15 to 20 feet long, snake-like with two brown humps that protruded from the water and left behind a wake like that of a speedboat. Another report in the 1980s described by a crab fisherman stated the creature looked like the world's biggest eel. A more recent report in 2002 was by a man pulling a boat up the river near Brunswick who reported seeing something over 20 feet in length and 6 feet wide break the water. In 2010, an amateur photographer captured video of something strange swimming in the channel off Fort King George historic site in Darien. Sightings of the Altamaha continue to this day. This Major League Baseball season, fans may notice a patch on the players' uniforms that reads MLB 150. The logo commemorates the Cincinnati Red Stockings, who in 1869 became the first professional baseball team and went on to win an unprecedented 81 straight games. From theconversation.com, a story by Robert Weiss. How the 1869 Cincinnati Red Stockings turned baseball into a national sensation. As the league's first openly salaried club, the Red Stockings made professionalism, which had previously been frowned upon, acceptable to the American public. But the winning streak was just as pivotal. This did not just make the city famous, John Thorne, Major League Baseball's official historian, said in an interview for this article. It made baseball famous. In the years after the Civil War, baseball's popularity exploded and thousands of American communities fielded teams. Initially, most players were gentry, lawyers, bankers, and merchants whose wealth allowed them to train and play as a hobby. The National Association of Baseball Players banned the practice of paying players. At the time, the concept of amateurism was especially popular among fans. Inspired by classical ideas of sportsmanship, its proponents argued that playing sport for a reason other than for the love of the game was immoral, even corrupt. Nonetheless, some of the major clubs in the East and Midwest began disregarding the rule prohibiting professionalism and secretly hired talented young working-class players to get an edge. After the 1868 season, the National Association reversed its position and sanctified the practice of paying players. The move recognized the reality that some players were already getting paid, and that was unlikely to change because professionals clearly helped teams win. Yet the taint of professionalism restrained virtually every club from paying an entire roster of players. The Cincinnati Red Stockings, however, became the exception. In the years after the Civil War, Cincinnati was a young, growing, grimy city. The city had experienced an influx of German and Irish immigrants who toiled in the multiplying slaughterhouses. The stench of hog flesh wafted through the streets, while the black fumes of steamboats, locomotives, and factories lingered over the skyline. Nonetheless, money was pouring into the coffers of the city's gentry, and with prosperity, the city sought respectability. It wanted to be as significant as the big cities that ran along the Atlantic seaboard, New York, Philadelphia, and Baltimore. 
Cincinnati's main club, the Red Stockings, was run by an ambitious young lawyer named Aaron Champion. Prior to the 1869 season, he budgeted $10,000 for his payroll and hired Harry Wright to captain and manage the squad. Wright was lauded later in his career as a baseball Edison for his ability to find talent. But the best player on the team was his 22-year-old brother, George, who played shortstop. George Wright would end up finishing the 1869 season with a .633 batting average and 49 home runs. Only one player hailed from Cincinnati. The rest had been recruited from other teams around the nation. Wright had hoped to attract the top player in the country for each position. He didn't quite get the best of the best, but the team was loaded with stars. As the season began, the red stockings and their new salaries attracted little press attention. The benefits of professionalism were not immediately recognized. Greg Rhodes, co-author of Baseball Revolutionaries, How the 1869 Red Stockings Rocked the Country and Made Baseball Famous, told me. So the Cincinnati experiment wasn't seen as all that radical. The Red Stockings opened the season by winning 45-9. to They kept winning and winning and winning. Huge blowouts. At first, only the Cincinnati sports writers had caught on that something special was going on. Then in June, the team took its first road trip east, playing in hostile territory against what were considered the best teams in baseball. They were also performing before the most influential sports writers. The pivotal victory was a tight 4-2 win against what had been considered by many the best team in baseball, the powerful New York Mutuals, in a game played with Tammany Hall boss William Tweed watching from the stands. Now the national press was paying attention. The Red Stockings continued to win, and by the conclusion of the road trip in Washington, they were puffing stogies at the White House with their host, President Ulysses S. Grant. The players chugged home in a boozy, satisfied revel and were met by 4,000 joyous fans at Cincinnati's Union Station. The Red Stockings had become a sensation. They were profiled in magazines and serenaded in sheet music. Ticket prices doubled to 50 cents. They drew such huge crowds that during a game played outside of Chicago, an overloaded bleacher collapsed. Most scores were ridiculously lopsided. During the 1869 season, the team averaged 42 runs a game. Once, they even scored 103. The most controversial contest was in August against the Haymakers of Troy, New York. The game was rife with rumors of $17,000 bets and bookmakers bribing umpires and players. The game ended suspiciously at 17-17 when the Haymakers left the field in the sixth inning, incensed by an umpire's call. The Red Stockings were declared the winners. The season climaxed with a road trip west on the new Transcontinental Railroad, which had just opened in May. The players, armed with rifles, shot out windows at bison, antelope, and even prairie dogs and slept in wooden Coleman cars lighted with whale oil. More than 2,000 excited baseball fans greeted the team in San Francisco, where admission to games was $1 in gold. Cincinnati ended its season with an undefeated record, 57 wins, zero losses. The nation's most prominent sports writer of the day, Henry Chadwick, declared them champion club of the United States. Despite fears that other clubs would outbid Cincinnati for their players, 
every Red Stockings player demonstrated his loyalty by signing contracts to return for the 1870 season. The winning streak continued into the next season, up until a June 14, 1870 game against the Brooklyn Atlantics. After nine innings, the teams were tied at five. Under the era's rules, the game could have been declared a draw, leaving the streak intact. Instead, Harry Wright opted to continue, and the Red Stockings ended up losing in extra innings after an error by the second baseman, Charles Sweezy. The 81-game win streak had ended. The Red Stockings did not return in 1871. Ticket sales had fallen after their first loss, and other teams began to outbid the Red Stockings for their star players. Ultimately, the cost of retaining all of its players was more than the Cincinnati club could afford. Yet the team had made its mark. It made baseball from something of a provincial fair to a national game, Thorne explained. A few years later, in 1876, the National League was founded and still exists today. The Cincinnati Reds were a charter member. And, not surprisingly, some of the biggest 150-year celebrations of the first professional baseball team are occurring in the town they once called Porkopolis. Last May, an elderly man was admitted to the Brooklyn branch of Mount Sinai Hospital for abdominal surgery. A blood test revealed that he was infected with a newly discovered germ as deadly as it was mysterious. Doctors swiftly isolated him in the intensive care unit. From the New York Times.com, a story by Matt Richtel and Andrew Jacobs. A mysterious infection spanning the globe in a climate of secrecy. The germ, a fungus called Candida auris, preys on people with weakened immune systems and is quietly spreading across the globe. Over the last five years, it has hit a neonatal unit in Venezuela, swept through a hospital in Spain, and forced a prestigious British medical center to shut down its intensive care unit and taken root in India, Pakistan, and South Africa. Recently, C. auris reached New York, New Jersey, and Illinois, leading the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to add it to a list of germs deemed urgent threats. The man at Mount Sinai died after 90 days in the hospital, but C. Oris did not. Tests showed that it was everywhere in his room, so invasive that the hospital needed special cleaning equipment and had to rip out some of the ceiling and floor tiles to eradicate it. Everything was positive. The walls, the bed, the doors, the curtains, the phones, the sink, the whiteboard, the poles, the pump, said Dr. Scott Lauren, the hospital's president. The mattress, the bed rails, the canister holes, the window shades, the ceiling, everything in the room was positive. C. Oris is so tenacious in part because it is impervious to major antifungal medications, making it a new example of one of the world's most intractable health threats the rise of drug-resistant infections. For decades, public health experts have warned that overuse of antibiotics was reducing the effectiveness of drugs that have lengthened lifespans by curing bacterial infections once commonly fatal. But lately, there has been an explosion of resistant fungi as well, adding a new and frightening dimension to a phenomenon that is undermining a pillar of modern medicine. 
It's an enormous problem, said Matthew Fisher, a professor of fungal epidemiology at Imperial College London, who was a co-author of a recent scientific review on the rise of resistant fungi. We depend on being able to treat those patients with antifungals. Simply put, fungi, just like bacteria, are evolving defenses to survive modern medicines. Yet, even as world health leaders have pleaded for more restraint in prescribing antimicrobial drugs to combat bacteria and fungi, convening the United Nations General Assembly in 2016 to manage an emerging crisis, gluttonous overuse of them in hospitals, clinics, and farming has continued. Resistant germs are often called superbugs, but this is simplistic because they don't typically kill everyone. Instead, they're most lethal to people with immature or compromised immune systems, including newborns and the elderly, smokers, diabetics, and people with autoimmune disorders who take steroids that suppress the body's defenses. Scientists say that unless more effective new medicines are developed and unnecessary use of antimicrobial drugs is sharply curbed, risk will spread to healthier populations. A study the British government funded projects that if policies are not put in place to slow the rise of drug resistance, 10 million people could die worldwide of all such infections in 2050, eclipsing the 8 million expected to die that year from cancer. In the United States, 2 million people contract resistant infections annually, and 23,000 die from them, according to the official CDC estimate. That number was based on 2010 figures. More recent estimates from researchers at Washington University School of Medicine put the death toll at 162,000. Worldwide fatalities from resistant infections are estimated at 700,000. Antibiotics and antifungals are both essential to combat infections in people, but antibiotics are also used widely to prevent disease in farm animals, and antifungals are also applied to prevent agricultural plants from rotting. Some scientists cite evidence that rampant use of fungicides on crops is contributing to the surge in drug-resistant fungi infecting humans. Yet, as the problem grows, it is little understood by the public, in part because the very existence of resistant infections is often cloaked in secrecy. With bacteria and fungi alike, hospitals and local governments are reluctant to disclose outbreaks for fear of being seen as infection hubs, Even the CDC, under its agreement with states, is not allowed to make public the location or name of hospitals involved in outbreaks. State governments have in many cases declined to publicly share information beyond acknowledging that they have had cases. All the while, the germs are easily spread, carried on hands and equipment inside hospitals, ferried on meat and manure-fertilized vegetables from farms, transported across borders by travelers and on exports and imports, and transferred by patients from nursing home to hospital and back. C. auris, which infected the man at Mount Sinai, is one of dozens of dangerous bacteria and fungi that have developed resistance. Other prominent strains of the fungus Candida, one of the most common causes of bloodstream infections in hospitals, have not developed significant resistance to drugs, but more than 90% of C. auris infections are resistant to at least one drug, and 30% are resistant to two or more drugs, the CDC said. Dr. Lynn Sosa, Connecticut's deputy state epidemiologist, said she now saw C. auris as the top threat among resistant infections. It's pretty much unbeatable and difficult to identify, she said. 
Nearly half of patients who contract C. auris die within 90 days, according to the CDC. Yet the world's experts have not nailed down where it came from in the first place. It is a creature from the Black Lagoon, said Dr. Tom Chiller, who heads the fungal branch at the CDC, which is spearheading a global detective effort to try and find treatments and stop the spread. It bubbled up and now it's everywhere. In late 2015, Dr. Johanna Rhodes, an infectious disease expert at Imperial College London, got a panicked call from the Royal Brompton Hospital, a British medical center in London. C. Oris had taken root there months earlier, and the hospital couldn't clear it. We have no idea where it's coming from. We've never heard of it. It's just spread like wildfire, Dr. Rhodes says she was told. She agreed to help the hospital identify the fungus's genetic profile and clean it from the rooms. Under her direction, hospital workers used a special device to spray aerosolized hydrogen peroxide around a room used for a patient with C. auris, the theory being that the vapor would scour each nook and cranny. They left the device going for a week. Then they put a settle plate in the middle of the room with a gel at the bottom that would serve as a place for any surviving microbes to grow, Dr. Rhodes said. Only one organism grew back, C. auris. It was spreading, but word of it was not. The hospital, a specialty lung and heart center that draws wealthy patients from the Middle East and around Europe, alerted the British government and told infected patients, but made no public announcement. There was no need to put out a news release during the outbreak, said Oliver Wilkinson, a spokesman for the hospital. This hushed panic is playing out in hospitals around the world. Individual institutions and national, state, and local governments have been reluctant to publicize outbreaks of resistant infections, arguing there's no point in scaring patients or prospective ones. Dr. Silk Shillins, Royal Brompton's infectious disease specialist, found the lack of urgency from the government and hospital in the early stages of the outbreak very, very frustrating. They obviously didn't want to lose reputation, Dr. Shellen said. It hadn't impacted our surgical outcomes. By the end of June 2016, a scientific paper reported an ongoing outbreak of 50 C. auris cases at Royal Brompton, and the hospital took an extraordinary step. It shut down its ICU for 11 days, moving intensive care patients to another floor, again with no announcement. Days later, the hospital finally acknowledged to a newspaper that it had a problem. A headline in the Daily Telegraph warned, Intensive care unit closed after deadly new superbug emerges in the UK. Later research said there were eventually 72 total cases, though some patients were only carriers and were not infected by the fungus. Yet the issue remained little known internationally, while an even bigger outbreak had begun in Valencia, Spain, at the 992-bed Hospital Universitari Ipolitik La Fe. There, unbeknownst to the public or unaffected patients, 372 people were colonized, meaning they had the germ on their body but were not sick with it, and 85 developed bloodstream infections. A paper in the journal Mycoses reported that 41% of the infected patients died within 30 days. A statement from the hospital said it was not necessarily C. auris that killed them. It is very difficult to discern whether patients die from the pathogen or with it since there are patients with many underlying diseases and in very serious general condition, the statement said. As with Royal Brompton, 
the hospital in Spain did not make any public announcement. It still has not. One author of the article in Mycoses, a doctor at the hospital, said in an email that the hospital did not want him to speak to journalists because it is concerned about the public image of the hospital. The secrecy infuriates patient advocates who say people have a right to know if there is an outbreak so they can decide whether to go to a hospital, particularly when dealing with a non-urgent matter like elective surgery. Why the heck are we reading about an outbreak almost a year and a half later and not have it front-page news the day after it happens, said Dr. Kevin Kavanaugh, a physician in Kentucky and board chairman of Health Watch USA, a nonprofit advocacy group. You wouldn't tolerate this at a restaurant with a food poisoning outbreak. Health officials say that disclosing outbreaks frightens patients about a situation they can do nothing about, particularly when the risks are unclear. It's hard enough with these organisms for healthcare providers to wrap their heads around it said Dr. Anna Yaffe, a former CDC outbreak investigator who dealt with resistant infection outbreaks in Kentucky in which the hospitals were not publicly disclosed. It's really impossible to message to the public. Officials in London did alert the CDC to the Royal Brompton outbreak while it was occurring, and the CDC realized it needed to get the word to American hospitals. On June 24, 2016, the CDC blasted a nationwide warning to hospitals and medical groups and set up an email address, candidaoris at cdc.gov, to field queries. Dr. Snigda Vallabanini, a key member of the fungal team, expected to get a trickle, maybe a message every month. Instead, within weeks, her inbox exploded. In the United States, 587 cases of people having contracted C. auris have been reported, concentrated with 309 in New York, 104 in New Jersey, and 114 in Illinois, according to the CDC. The symptoms, fever, aches, and fatigue, are seemingly ordinary, but when a person gets infected, particularly someone already unhealthy, such commonplace symptoms can be fatal. The earliest known case in the United States involved a woman who arrived at a New York hospital on May 6, 2013, seeking care for respiratory failure. She was 61 and from the United Arab Emirates, and she died a week later, after testing positive for the fungus. At the time, the hospital hadn't thought much of it, but three years later, it sent the case to the CDC after reading the agency's June 2016 advisory. This woman was probably not America's first C. auris patient. She carried a strain different from the South Asian one most common here. It killed a 56-year-old American woman who had traveled to India in March 2017 for elective abdominal surgery, contracted C. auris, and was airlifted back to a hospital in Connecticut that officials will not identify. She was later transferred to a Texas hospital, where she died. The germ has spread into long-term care facilities. In Chicago, 50% of the residents at some nursing homes have tested positive for it, the CDC has reported. The fungus can grow on intravenous lines and ventilators. Workers who care for the patients infected with C. auris worry for their own safety. Dr. Matthew McCarthy, who has treated several C. auris patients at Weill Cornell Medical Center in New York, described experiencing an unusual fear when treating a 30-year-old man. I found myself not wanting to touch the guy, he said. I didn't want to take it from the guy and bring it to someone else. 
He did his job and thoroughly examined the patient, but said there was an overwhelming feeling of being terrified of accidentally picking it up on a sock or tie or gown. As the CDC works to limit the spread of drug-resistant sea oris, its investigators have been trying to answer the vexing question, where in the world did it come from? The first time doctors encountered sea oris was in the ear of a woman in Japan in 2009. Oris is Latin for ear. It seemed innocuous at the time, a cousin of common, easily treated fungal infections. Three years later, it appeared in an unusual test result in the lab of Dr. Jacques Mai, a microbiologist in Nijmegen in the Netherlands, who was analyzing a bloodstream infection in 18 patients from four hospitals in India. Soon, new clusters of C. auris seemed to emerge with each passing month in different parts of the world. The CDC investigators theorized that C. auris started in Asia and spread across the globe. But when the agency compared the entire genome of Oris samples from India and Pakistan, Venezuela, South Africa, and Japan, it found that its origin was not a single place, and there was not a single Oris strain. The genome sequencing showed that there were four distinctive versions of the fungus, with differences so profound that they suggested that these strains had diverged thousands of years ago and emerged as resistant pathogens from harmless environmental strains, in four different places at the same time. Somehow, it made a jump almost seemingly simultaneously and seemed to spread, and it is drug-resistant, which is really mind-boggling, Dr. Vallabanini said. There are different theories as to what happened with C. auris. Dr. Mai, the Dutch researcher, said he believed that drug-resistant fungi were developing thanks to heavy use of fungicides on crops. Dr. Mai became intrigued by resistant fungi when he heard about the case of a 63-year-old patient in the Netherlands who died in 2005 from a fungus called Aspergillus. It proved resistant to a frontline antifungal treatment called etraconazole. That drug is a virtual copy of the azole pesticides that are used to dust crops the world over and account for more than one-third of all fungicide sales. A 2013 paper in PLOS Pathogens said that it appeared to be no coincidence that drug-resistant aspergillus was showing up in the environment where the azole fungicides were used. The fungus appeared in 12% of Dutch soil samples, for example, but also in flower beds, compost, leaves, plant seeds, soil samples of tea gardens, paddy fields, hospital surroundings, and aerial samples of hospitals. Dr. Mai visited the CDC last summer to share research and theorize that the same thing is happening with C. auris, which is also found in the soil. Azoles have created an environment so hostile that the fungi are evolving, with resistant strains surviving. This is similar to concerns that resistant bacteria are growing because of excessive use of antibiotics in livestock for health and growth promotion. As with antibiotics in farm animals, Azoles are used widely on crops. On everything, potatoes, beans, wheat, anything you can think of, tomatoes, onions, said Dr. Rhodes, the infectious disease specialist who worked on the London outbreak. We're driving this with the use of antifungicides on crops. Dr. Chiller theorizes that C. auris may have benefited from the heavy use of fungicides. 
His idea is that C. Oris actually has existed for thousands of years, hidden in the world's crevices, a not particularly aggressive bug. But as the Azalus began destroying more prevalent fungi, an opportunity arrived for C. Oris to enter the breach, a germ that had the ability to readily resist fungicides, now suitable for a world in which fungi less able to resist are under attack. The mystery of C. Oris's emergence remains unsolved, and its origin seems, for the moment, to be less important than stopping its spread. For now, the uncertainty around C. Oris has led to a climate of fear and sometimes denial. Last spring, Jasmine Cutler, 29, went to visit her 72-year-old father at a hospital in New York City, where he had been admitted because of complications from a surgery the previous month. When she arrived at his room, she discovered that he had been sitting for at least an hour in a recliner, in his own feces, because no one had come when he had called for help to use the bathroom. Miss Cutler said it became clear to her that the staff was afraid to touch him because a test had shown that he was carrying C. Oris. I saw doctors and nurses looking in the window of his room, she said. My father is not a guinea pig. You're not going to treat him like a freak at a show. He was eventually discharged and told he no longer carried the fungus, but he declined to be named, saying he feared being associated with the frightening infection. And now from soulask.com. A story titled, Reptilian Humanoid Startles Bikers in the Sonoran Desert, Arizona. A group of three mountain bikers reportedly saw a reptilian humanoid last week in the middle of a trail located in the Sonoran Desert. The bicyclists were riding the 24 hours in the Old Pueblo race course, a 17-mile trail, when they spotted the creature. It's a tough one, said G. Johnson, 34, a self-described business person from Tucson. It is a 24-hour track, so you better come prepared with more than enough food and water. There are times you just want to go back and wish you'd never got there in the first place. But when you see what nature has to offer you here, well, those regrets dissipate rather quickly. Johnson states that he and two other friends were halfway into the track when something terrifying made the group consider canceling the ride. We had been riding for about, I don't know, maybe nine hours, taking breaks every now and then. Then Michael says he needs to stop for a minute. We're waiting for him to finish when all of a sudden we see this long figure walking across the trail. He's maybe about six foot tall, very, very skinny, and had an awkward gait, like a monkey or a man with a disease. Almost robotic, kind of, he told Cryptozoology News. According to the eyewitness, two of the men were watching the strange animal while the third one, Michael, was unaware of what was happening. Then, all I remember about Michael is him saying, what the hell is that, or something like that, but he sounded far away. He probably used a different word instead of hell. Thing is, we'd somehow walked a little towards the thing. Don't ask me why, maybe to look at it better, not knowing what it was. Then, Johnson says, the creature heard Michael speak and apparently taking notice of the intruders, its head took an eerie 280-degree turn. He stopped and made eye contact with me, and I could see him clearly. 
The eyes were kind of like a snake's, but black and with a yellow stripe in the middle of the eye. It had green and red scales on the face and head. The red color was kind of like the same as the desert sand there, and it looked like it had a sandy texture too. It didn't have a nose, only two holes on it. I couldn't see any ears or hair. A red mouth that looked like it had blood around it, but it didn't look like it was bleeding. It looked like a pattern. It reminded me of a chameleon, but it looked like a person too. Allegedly, the creature raised its long arms with strange-looking claws that looked like a branch full of thorns and waved at them, emitting a loud, chattering sound with its teeth. Then it rapidly ran away in a fashion that reminded the witness of a lizard trying to hide. He looked like he was examining us, and then he ran into the desert. We thought about going back the same way we came, but we thought it didn't matter since we were in the middle of the track anyway. We were scared, to be honest. None of us had ever seen anything like it. It lasted only a few seconds, but it felt longer than that, at least to me. So, after we talked about it for a while, we decided to go on and finish the track. Johnson believes that what they saw was real and not a product of their imagination. When you read these stories online or watch them on TV, well, you think, man, these people are crazy, on meds or something, or in need of attention. But this has made me a believer. There has to be more of them out there. If there's one, there's got to be two at least, right? I know most people won't believe a word I said. That's the way I used to be. I don't blame them at all. But they are out there. Now, I'm not saying this is an alien or a chupacabra or anything like that. All I'm saying is I've never seen anything like it in my life. But I'm no biologist, so what do I know? Theories of subterranean alien bases are popular in the UFO community and describe the entities as humanoids of reptilian appearance. Southwestern Native American legends tell the story of underground creatures living next to humans for thousands of years. People living around the New Mexico border report seeing strange lights in the sky and bizarre phenomena, indirectly creating a thin line between cryptozoology and ufology, writer Mac Tonnies in his book the Crypto-Terrestrials, a meditation on indigenous humanoids and the aliens among us, proposes the idea that certain alien sightings could be attributed to the existence of a group of humanoid species endemic to Earth. That concludes this episode of the Curseland Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. The show is also on Twitter at Curseland, so you can message me on there if you'd prefer. Also, the mailing list is up on the website, so if you want to get updates about the show, hear things that the general public doesn't get to hear, all that kind of stuff, go sign up there at curse.land. Till next time, I'll talk to you all later. 